because there is no silver bullet to addressing the affordable housing crisis, we have to be energetic in all of the tools that we are using. There's a real um, supply and demand issue. Solving that problem in the long term means increasing our capacity for residential growth in neighborhoods across the city. Welcome to What's the Data Point from Citizens Budget Commission and Gotham Gazette. I'm Ben Max from Gotham Gazette. I'm Carol Kellerman from Citizens Budget Commission. Thanks for joining us for this episode. Uh, this episode's slightly different than other ones we've done on this podcast. Uh, for today's episode, we have Housing Commissioner Maria Torres Springer, but after we introduce our data point for the episode, you're going to hear a portion of the remarks that Commissioner Torres Springer gave at a Citizens Budget Commission event. And following that excerpt of her remarks, there's a very interesting, if I do say so myself, Q&A that Carol and I had with Commissioner Torres Springer uh, privately after the speech. So stay tuned for both the excerpt of the speech from Commissioner Torres Springer, who is leading the city's affordable housing plan, and then our uh, question and answer session with her. So for our data point today, Carol? Our data point is 77,651, which is the number of affordable housing units financed thus far in Mayor de Blasio's 10-year plan to construct and preserve a total of 200,000 affordable units over 10 years. This program, called Housing New York, is overseen by the City's Department of Housing Preservation and Development, or HPD, the nation's largest municipal housing agency. Since Mayor de Blasio took office, HPD has overseen the commitment of $2.3 billion in capital funding for affordable housing, most of it through loans and development programs. HPD is responsible for administering the city's Section 8 rental housing voucher program, which last year provided federal rent subsidies to over 39,000 households. It also has enforcement powers over landlords to protect tenants, and HPD's Asset Management Division monitors the financial, physical, and regulatory condition of over 80,000 affordable housing units across the city, ranging from co-ops to Mitchell Lama high-rises to units built through the recently reauthorized 421A program, now known as Affordable New York. Our guest today is HPD Commissioner Maria Torres Springer, who previously served as President of the New York City Economic Development Corporation, Commissioner of the New York City Department of Small Business Services, and a Senior Policy Advisor in the Office of the Deputy Mayor for Economic Development and Rebuilding. What you're about to hear is a couple of portions of Commissioner Torres Springer's remarks. For the full speech, you can see the video through Citizens Budget Commission's website. Thank you for inviting me here to speak about the progress under the Mayor's Housing New York Plan. So in the last three and a half years, we've made great progress towards the Mayor's Housing Plan, not just against the objective measures that we set, but in the policies often less visible that we believe will pay, pay dividends long into the future. But Housing New York, the plan, is really just one piece of a larger, more complex puzzle. There is no silver bullet to solve the city's housing crisis. New York City has been in a housing emergency with an extremely low vacancy rate since the early 1970s. Now this housing crisis has changed over the decades. But to be clear, this isn't just a problem here in the city. 
This is a crisis of national proportions. In no state in this entire country can a person working full time at the federal minimum wage afford a two bedroom apartment at fair market rent. That to me is a very staggering statistic. And yet the federal government has been pulling back from public and affordable housing even before the current administration made headlines for proposing to slash the budget for federal housing programs. Now the scale and complexity of the problem is enormous and therefore it requires a very comprehensive solution as well as investment at every level of government. So today I'd like to talk about Housing New York in the much larger context of the nationwide housing crisis that we face and as a critical part of the administration's much larger strategy to ensure New York City's long-term sustainability and competitiveness. So the goals of Housing New York, 200,000 units over the course of the next 10 years. Now much of the focus has been on the numbers, the number of affordable units we create and preserve, the incomes of the New Yorkers we serve, the cost of each and every unit, and to be sure, all of these elements are important drivers of our work. Yet we see our work as much more than just the numbers, much more than just the 200,000 units. We view it through a few lenses. We view it through the lens of neighborhoods, how we ensure that investments are meeting the needs of communities. At the building level, how we secure the long-term affordability and sustainability of the housing we create and preserve, and ultimately and most importantly, through the eyes of the people that we serve. How do we give as many individuals and families as possible the opportunities that they need to thrive in the city and to not fear that they are losing their place in the city that they love? Of course, the housing plan is the main pillar supporting this larger agenda. Now at the start of this administration, the mayor committed unprecedented resources, city capital, to create and preserve affordable housing, but also dedicated a wide array of resources to keep people in their homes and protect their right to save quality housing. As a result, our investment in affordable housing is paired with funding for legal services to guarantee legal counsel for low-income tenants facing eviction, a multi-jurisdictional anti-harassment task force that many colleagues in the state sit with us on, two years of rent freezes for rent-regulated tenants, expansion of SCREE and DRE to freeze the rents for eligible seniors and New Yorkers with disabilities, enhanced enforcement tools to address poor housing conditions. And so Housing New York represents, in our opinion, and we continue to work on this every day, a broader set of strategies to confront the housing crisis. We know that we have to work on all of these fronts simultaneously, but it also is about addressing the underlying problem, which is one of basic supply and demand. There just isn't enough housing for the growing number of people who choose to live and stay in New York. And we also have a mismatch between the changing composition of New York City households and the existing housing stock. Ultimately, of course, growth is good for the city, but the market isn't keep for housing isn't keeping up and it specifically isn't meeting the needs of low, moderate, middle-income New Yorkers. So we need to produce more housing, and we especially need to create and preserve more affordable housing. And so, how are we doing? Three and a half years into our work, we are on target with 77,651 affordable units created or preserved. That's enough to serve a population the size of Salt Lake City. And we're also, and we are, quite heartened by this, meeting our affordability goals. 
Almost one third of the housing we've created or preserved, that's about 25,000 units, are for extremely low and very low income New Yorkers. That's making less than 43,000 for a family of three. That includes more than 11,000 units for families making less than 26,000. Almost half of the units we finance are for low income New Yorkers. And the remaining 20 are for moderate and middle income New Yorkers. We're also pleased that in the last fiscal year, um, we have really accelerated the pace in which we are building um, housing for formerly homeless households as well as seniors. Based on all these results, the mayor announced in February that we would produce another 10,000 units for extremely low and very low income New Yorkers, bringing the overall target for those households to 50,000 or 25% of the pan. To achieve this deeper affordability, the mayor committed an additional 1.9 billion in capital funds that will be allocated over the remaining years of Housing New York. Importantly, of course, for this group especially, we've not only accomplished our goals, but we've kept the plan on budget. To date, we've spent approximately 2.8 billion in city subsidy. This means that we've achieved 40% of our production goals, but have only spent 26% of the city subsidy allocated for the plan. Now, in part, this is because to date, uh, we are still working towards the 40-60 split between new construction and preservation that we really saw at the beginning of the plan. Much of this is about timing. We've seized critical preservation opportunities like Stytown, Riverton, Penn South, thousands and thousands of units um, in those preservation projects. While many of our new construction projects on public sites in particular are still moving through the public approval process. At the same time, this reflects our very strong leverage numbers to date. One of the strengths of the affordable housing model is that we're able to use the city's investment to leverage additional um, significant additional resources. For every dollar of city subsidy we spend, we're leveraging $5.35 in state, federal, and private financing. Now, to be sure, this number fluctuates. It hinges on a lot of variables, such as pricing for the low-income housing tax credit. Since January, we have seen a modest drop in house credit pricing. At the same time, we're putting more capital into projects to reach deeper affordability. Now, despite these fluctuations, affordable housing production continues to deliver a great bang for the city's buck. No other agency, in my opinion, is able to use their capital funding to leverage private investment in this way, in the same way, making housing a really smart and efficient investment for the city. Now on to our work with communities. So Housing New York has not used, should not use, a top-down approach. Real community engagement, and so many of you have lived through this and are deeply involved in this work, involves a complicated and sometimes messy back and forth. And so we can't be and have not been overly prescriptive about each and every one of our development plans. Now a lot of ink has been spilled about the pace of rezonings and projects that did not get city council approval. But there is more to what is happening on the ground than what you might read in headlines. For instance, more than two-thirds of our projects last year required some form of city council approval. So despite the emphasis on very well-covered political opposition to very specific projects, the vast majority of our work, the work we do day-to-day -day with so many of you in the room, is being approved, is, is moving forward, hence the numbers of production that we're able to share. And we're currently working 
um, with com on community plans in more than a dozen different neighborhoods across the city, not just on rezonings, um, but in neighborhoods like in Edgemere and Queens and in Brownsville, where there are a lot of opportunities given the availability of city-owned land. The planning process in those neighborhoods, while certainly painstaking, I think demonstrate the fruits of our labors in terms of community engagement. We now have detailed plans created in concert with the community that represent a shared vision and a concrete path for these neighborhoods, which have been overlooked for just way too long. And we are pushing ahead on area-wide rezonings, fully aware that the extensive community engagement we committed to undertake necessitates that we act with both a sense of urgency given the needs on the ground and patience given the work we need to do with communities. But we are seeing results, as the recent approval of the downtown Far Rockaway neighborhood plan will attest. Didn't get a ton of coverage, um, but it's the type of plan that I think embodies the model of neighborhood planning we're seeking to do across the city. One where we're increasing the capacity for residential growth, but we're also making the types of investments in parks, in streets, in community facilities, in workforce training that will strengthen the bones of communities for generations to come. Within neighborhoods, just to talk now about our programs, we're also drilling down to the building and site level where properties, land availability costs vary greatly. We deploy a wide range of programs and tools to meet the varied needs of our diverse housing stock. To give you some examples, we're extending affordability and rehabbing both large Michelamas and single family homes. Massive complexes like Stytown and small 20-unit rent-stabilized buildings. The range of our programs must match the unique conditions and needs, physical and financial, of all of these different properties. At the same time, we are financing new construction projects on large city-owned sites as well as small infill sites, working with private, not-for-profit developers as well, faith-based community groups, um, other community organizations who come to us with potential sites to develop as affordable housing. We're providing down payment assistance to first-time low-income homeowners from the South Shore of Staten Island to Borough Park in Brooklyn and Flushing, Queens. And the administration is, of course, very committed to approaching more supportive, com uh, creating more supportive housing, one of the most cost-effective and humane approaches to serving New Yorkers with special needs. Now, we are equally committed to finding ways to reach greater affordability citywide without city subsidy. Through our mandatory inclusion in your housing program, the most aggressive in the country, and certainly much thanks to uh, my predecessor, Vicki Bean, and all of the work to get this off the ground, we now require permanently affordable housing to be created in areas rezoned for growth, securing affordability far into the future. And though still very new, more than 10,000 new homes have been approved in individual applications by the city council. Of those units, 2,600 are required to be permanently affordable under MIH, and nearly 5,000 will be affordable through other programs. This is on top of the more than 6,600 units we financed through our voluntary inclusionary housing program. And of course, we fought hard for reforms to 421A to achieve affordability requirements citywide and tax breaks for luxury condos. In high-cost neighborhoods where it's difficult for the city to subsidize affordable housing development, 421A has been and will continue to be an important tool to create affordable housing opportunities that would otherwise be out of reach. And we're always looking to expand and strengthen tools 
available to secure long-term affordability for future generations. That's why we now finance virtually all projects using balloon mortgages that result in an owner owning the city a significant amount of money at the end of the loan term. Provides a very strong incentive, of course, for an owner to extend affordability. And recently, we introduced a new policy to ensure future public control of all affordable housing developed on city-owned sites. Through the use of a remainder interest, HPD will guarantee future control of its public land to ensure long-term affordability. The agency will apply this new approach in all future RFEIs, RFPs for housing development, starting with the RFP for three HPD-owned sites in Brownsville, the RFP for the Inwood Library in Upper Manhattan, the RFEI for the Greenpoint Hospital site in, downtown, in Brooklyn, all of which have been released in recent weeks. Under this new policy, when HPD conveys land for affordable housing development, it's subject to a remainder interest, a legal tool that will give the city ownership at the end of the initial affordability period with an option to leave the property in private ownership if the owner agrees to extend the affordability period. And to be very, very clear, we do so in the face of very real threats on the horizon. Potential policy changes, tax reform um, on the federal level have could have very serious consequences for affordable housing work. Tax reform, for instance, could have implications for the tax credit incentive programs we use to get housing built, both the low-income housing tax credit and private activity tax-exempt bonds. For example, of course, if the corporate tax rate is lower, that makes investors less eager to buy housing credits, which means less money for affordable housing. We are working with groups across the country, however, to fight certain budget cuts. Now, as you, might, you may not know, and it keeps me up at night, 86% of my expense budget at HPD is federally funded th through HUD. And, as I, and I'm sure you've heard um, that President Trump proposed eviscerating programs with long-standing bipartisan support like CDBG, like the Home Investment Partnership. And his proposed budget would have eliminated thousands of Section 8 vouchers in the city. But if working in affordable housing has taught us anything, it's how to fight for every dime and use every resource with incredible efficiency. So now, more than ever, we are very much focused on fighting to protect all of these programs. So we're here after Commissioner Torres Springer's speech to CBC. Uh, this is Ben Max from Gotham Gazette. With me is Carol Kellerman, president of CBC and Commissioner Torres Springer, thank you. Um, so in, in your remarks, you mentioned the need for the federal government to be a really strong partner. You talked about how much of HPD's budget is dependent on federal resources. Talk a little bit about the state role. Do you rely, what do you rely on the state of New York for, and what are you looking for the state to enhance in terms of support for your housing program? Um, so the work of affordable housing has been, in its history, has always involved uh, partnership on all levels of government. Um, that has uh, been true for the last several decades. It's been true between the city and state. Um, we work, collaborate on so much um, already together, including, um, for instance, um, our supportive housing pipeline, which necessarily has always involved um, partnership between 
um, uh, the city and the state. We work together in terms of um, combating harassment by landlords. Um, and so I think that work will continue. It's already been a very productive um, relationship. Um, and so the continued collaboration there is key. And um, joining together in advocating for um, the types of, um, of actions on the federal level that will allow us to make sure that we're building as much affordable housing in New York City and, um, and in New York State. That had, uh, too has been a good partnership and that should continue because we can't let any level of government walk away from its obligation to make sure that New Yorkers have access to good and safe homes. To follow up on that, you mentioned supportive housing. Famously, the city and state didn't come up with a new New York, New York, but the city and state sort of each are doing their own supportive housing plans that sort of add up to a really nice number, um, it seems. But is that coordination there on the supportive housing, or are the two entities sort of doing it much more independently? Yeah, I think despite what you read in the headlines, the coordination and collaboration on the agency level and the staff level happens every day. Um, and that's a good thing. For, um, uh, for New Yorkers and for the people we are trying to serve, either in our supportive housing programs or um, in other affordable housing programs that we work jointly on. And is there anything else monetarily or policy-wise that you are eyeing from the state for January, you know, for the new year when they come back to session? Is there and anything I, at this time? I think um, a, a couple things. Um, uh, to the extent that there are more resources, of course we, we would welcome that. We need that um, in any, uh, given the, the crisis that we are facing in terms of affordable housing in New York. Um, and also, we need to continue our, our work to strengthen rent regulation laws. Um, and that, of course, is a, um, uh, is a journey, is a battle that will be fought over the course of the next couple of years. We achieved... Um, uh, certain reforms um, a couple of years ago, but we need to continue that work with incredible vigilance because we need to find every way to ensure that tenants um, in rent-regulated buildings are as protected as they need to be into the future. One other theme of your remarks that I wanted to ask you about was you seem very sort of um, assertive, you use assertive language, aggressive, you know, we must push forward with the rezoning. So I wanted to ask you is, are you intimating anything in particular there that you sort of really are, you know, you, you mentioned that you're blending getting community feedback, but also the need to keep going. I mean, you can't let some of those, as you said, sort of loud voices hold you back. Does that mean anything different for where we're going here? Uh, I think it means that there, because there is no silver bullet to addressing the affordable housing crisis, we have to be energetic in all of the tools that we are using. There's a real um, supply and demand issue. Solving that problem in the long term means increasing our capacity for residential growth in neighborhoods across the city. A, um, a fundamental way to do that is rezonings. Um, and I, I, was, I, I talked a lot about it in today's remarks because I think if you just read the headlines, um, it, the, the headlines seem to be dominated by talk about the pace of the rezonings and, and some of the battles. Um, and, and I think that does a disservice to the type of work that we are actually doing on the ground, where on a day-to-day -day basis, you know, two-thirds of the projects that we closed last year um, needed some type of city council approval, which we got. 
um, and the work that is happening on the ground while painstaking, while hard, is necessary in order to achieve those outcomes that we want in the future. Um, and and I, I use words like push forward because I think that's what we really need to do. If we are going to build um, the capacity that we need for a growing city, if, we're, if we are going to ensure that this is the type of place that New Yorkers, old and new, can continue to call home, um, then we need to continue to think big, we need to continue to push forward on the hard projects, um, but we need to do it in a way where we are very, not just conscientious of, but really acting on not the fears and the concerns that we are hearing on the ground. It's precisely what we're doing, and we need to continue to do more of it, um, and also celebrate the successes that have, ha that have happened. We, uh, the city council recently approved, for instance, the downtown Far Rockaway plan, a neighborhood that has been neglected for generations. Hundreds of millions of dollars in investment are going in, thousands of units of housing, but we're, we did that in concert with the community, in concert with the local council member, and it's just the type of neighborhood plan that is a model for what we have been doing and need to continue to do more of in the future. I know Carol's going to jump in in a second, but um, just, just one more on that. Um, is there sort of, is it your notion from what you and the city knows on the ground that there's sort of a silent majority a lot of times in these rezonings where there's a minority that's very loud and organized and has certain interests or has certain ideological beliefs, but there's sort of a a quiet majority that knows that um, this needs to happen because there's a supply issue. Is that sort of the um, a good way to think about well, it? Well, um, I, I think that's a, that that is a useful way to, to think about it. But uh, the other, there is no such thing as the community, right? There is no there is no one there is no one voice, and so. Um, I'm always skeptical when people say the community believes X, the community is opposing Y, because in our work day to day with real human beings on the ground on their needs and aspirations and fears, there is a wide range of voices. And what we try to do in each of these plans, rezonings or community plans, individual projects, is make sure we're listening, taking in that feedback, but also uh, making the really tough choices, um, competing policy objectives most of the time, but still marching forward to get the projects done. Um, and when you strike the right balance, you end up with a community plan or a project that everyone can embrace and is the type of thing that will pay dividends to the community long into the future. Uh, I wanted to uh, focus a little bit on your statement that the problem of affordable housing is largely a question of supply and demand. You also, though, started your presentation with a map of the United States and pointed out that the lack of affordable housing is a national problem and that in pretty much everywhere, there were a few exceptions, but pretty much everywhere, people who earn the minimum wage couldn't afford a two-bedroom apartment. So it's a national problem, as you said. and. Isn't it really an income problem, um, not one of supply and demand? There, there are plenty of other places in the United States where we're not as confined to a five-borough area where there's only so much housing that can be built, but that people aren't earning enough to afford all of the housing that's there, 
And that's a result of, we know, stagnant incomes in the middle and working classes for quite a long time. Um, so, you know, to what extent is that really what's going on? And how much can a city housing agency or even a municipality on its own compensate for larger national economic problems? Mm. Um, so, I, I certainly think that um, the income side of the equation is um, an important factor here. It's why I talked about um, when we think about affordability, it's not, it shouldn't just be about the number of housing units that are built or the rent burden of New Yorkers, um, but we should think about the issue of income. And I've spent most of my career in economic development and small business development and workforce development. And so um, making sure that we're addressing that side of the equation is incredibly important. I think we have a lot of tools on the local level to address um, issues of um, economic opportunity. Um, it starts with making the types of investments um, in the sectors that we know have the uh, capacity, opportunity to provide good paying jobs. It means making the types of investments in skills training where people of all backgrounds have an abil ability to attach to those jobs. It means making the types of investments that make the city stronger and competitive regardless of what sector um, uh, emerges as dominant. And those are the types of investments in education, the types of investments in um, infrastructure um, that we have pushed for and continue to make. It also means policy level um, uh, changes um, that balance the equation in favor of working families. Paid sick leave, fair scheduling, a higher minimum wage. And so we are active on all those fronts and we need to be because solving this crisis is not just about pulling one lever. It's not just about affordable housing. We are squarely focused on that because of the, of the crisis, but we have to use all of our tools, municipal tools, in tandem in order to really make an end. We'll just keep you for a couple more quick questions okay. and then and then let you go. We appreciate all the time. So um, I want you to maybe clear something <coughs> up for, for the city. The vacant lots. There's a lot of talk about, you know, there was a controller's audit that came out a while back, and that's continued to be part of the conversation. The administration sort of pushed back on that at the time, and it just bubbles up here and there. Where is that at? Where is, you know, where is sort of HPD on, there's vacant lots in the pipeline, there's others that aren't really usable. How, yeah. Can you give us sort of a Absol clarity Absolutely. point on that? I think that? this has been, um, there's a lot of um, misconception about this, so I'm happy to clear the air. Please. Um, we have spent a lot of time because the inventory of city-owned lots um, and city-owned sites has been one that has been dwindling over the course of the last few decades. So the, the sites that are available, um, we've had like a near maniacal focus on making sure that we know where they are and that we are putting them to good use. And so the, to the extent that there are vacant sites, hundreds of those have either already uh, been designated or in the pipeline um, or, or, or will be soon. There's a good portion of those that are very small lots that have significant issues where you can't really build. And to be honest, even for those, we're looking at ways to cluster them so that there's an affordable housing project that can be built. And so it is um, the opposite of the truth to say that we are not using those sites 
as aggressively and as effectively as possible. Um, we are, we've pushed out RFPs in this administration, HPD, at a record pace. Um, and our constraint, um, in some ways, is it, it's not about, in, um, it's not just about land. We are pushing out those RFPs. There are resources that we have to make sure uh, preserve resources from the federal, state, local level um, in order to get done what we need to get done in a, in a yearly basis. Um, and so there is an accounting of each and every one of those lots and, um, and we're working on each and every one of them feverishly because we know it's a scarce resource and we want to make sure we're maximizing affordable housing wherever we can. And that legislation that relates to that, the Warehousing Act, the, the housing not warehousing, I don't know where the administration yeah. is on that. So You're there's, still... you know, the, the, um, those bills are, are both for city-owned and private. Mm-hmm. And so for private vacant lots, you know, I think that we have to make sure we're respecting those property rights and addressing what the real problem is, right? Um, and um, for the city-owned lots, however, as I mentioned, we're, we're working on each and every one of those lots as aggressively as possible. But we continue to work with the council on those bills to make sure, because we share the goal of using every square foot of real estate that we possibly can to build affordable housing, but we have to do it, um, of course, in the most strategic way. Okay, and um, last one from from me. Uh, I don't know, if, Carol, you want to... No, I don't want to take up too much <laughs> okay, time. So, um, we have a lot of material. So, so um, when you made, when you what you <coughs> mentioned about sort of making some adjustments, adding more capital yeah. to the long-term plan, getting more units in for lower-income folks. Um, was that something when you came into HPD, you said, we can do this, we need to do this? Um, is that something where, um, you know, that you're saying, you, you've heard the feedback and you're saying, you know, we can make some additional investments. It's not going to be cheap, but we can make some additional investments. And is that something we, we can think that the plan is still flexible enough that people should think, well, that they, they're continuing to sort of adapt? Yeah. Um, so the the addition of the 1.9 billion in additional city capital to reach deeper affordability um, it came at a time where we had enough of a runway, a track record in implementing um, the um, the pre-existing programs to make sure that those were the subsidy levels that would uh, create the type of production that we needed. With that um, uh, generally in place. Um, we added the capital because we know that um, we have to um, do as much as we can, as much as is feasible, um, to reach um, deeper and deeper levels of affordability. Um, and you know what you saw in fiscal year 17, more than 40 percent of the of the units that were financed um, are for units that are affordable to families um, making less than 43,000. And you know, 17% of that are for families making less than, than 26. And so it's really part of the evolution of the plan um, to make sure that we are adjusting to changes in the marketplace. I don't, the, the plan was never intended to be static. I, we have some core principles, core strategies. We're pushing forward on those. But of course, we have to adapt to what, we, uh, what is uh, either changing on the ground or um, threats that we are facing. Um, and, and to the extent that there are changes in the federal level, um, we're going to need to adapt and pivot. Um, to the extent that we are hearing different feedback, which we continue to do on the ground in New York City, w- w- of course we have to continue to flex. Um, but what we can't lose sight of 
is you know, the true north of what we're trying to do. We need to create and preserve as many affordable housing units as we possibly can because the statistics are very sobering, right? We have more than um, half New Yorkers um, are rent burden, and too many families are just one um, sickness, one job loss, one not so full-time work week away um, from um, economic devastation. And that is just not a state that we um, uh, can accept in a city as prosperous um, and, and has the values that New York has. Commissioner Torres Springer, thank you for the additional time and thank you for the remarks at, at, at CBC today. Thank you for having me. Thank, thank you very much. much. Bye.